I want us to start today by picking up a little bit of where we left off last week, because we didn't get to say everything that, or talk through everything I wanted to talk through. It's amazing how quickly the time goes. But um, we were talking about a variety of definitions last week. You remember that, that lesson we watched where Todd Friel just kind of opened his mouth and everything came out at 1,000 miles an hour? And uh, we were talking about the difference between general and specific revelation, talking about the difference in translations of the Bible. I gave you that chart, that continuum that showed on the, on the spectrum where Bible translations fall. And uh, there were lots of other things that we could talk about, but I do want to highlight a couple of things. Um, this is really going to stretch you. If you can answer this question, remember from last week, then you get, I don't know, great recognition. I don't know what you get. But um, he talked last week about the difference between descriptive revelation and uh, teaching revelation. He talked about the difference between a narrative in the text or what's called sometimes didactic scripture, meaning it teaches you. Can you remember the difference between narrative passages and teaching passages? What's the difference between a narrative and a teaching passage? Okay, narrative is story. So you can think of... Um, so many places, especially in the Old Testament, right? Uh, the life of Joseph, okay? You know that he um, went to Potiphar's house, or he went, to, he went to prison, ended up going to Potiphar's house, and then he came out of there, and he ended up being the uh, overseer of a big region there in Egypt. That's just a story, right? We're reading through the story. Now, how would you contrast that with something that's more of a teaching passage? Hey, the epistles. So you think of Paul's letters. We're going through 1 Corinthians right now. When you read through 1 Corinthians, of course, there are moments perhaps where he's telling a story, recounting something that happened. But by and large, you read 1 Corinthians and he's just telling you truths about God, about man, and how we should respond to God, right? It's teaching you. Uh, Todd Friel gave the example in the video last week about David and his many wives, or Solomon and his many wives. You read through those and does it say that it was, very, it was explicitly sinful for them to have many wives? Does it say that in the narrative? No, it doesn't, right? So how do we understand that polygamy is not God's design? Well, we go to other places in Scripture that give us the more of a direct teaching. So when people want to derive their doctrine out of narrative passages, uh, that's usually not a good sign. <laughs> because narratives are inspired, they are Scripture, the, those passages of Scripture are authoritative over our lives, but the purpose of those uh, sections isn't to teach us something, especially in the Christian church today, in the same way that Paul's letters or John's letters or Peter's letters do, right? Yeah, we think of all those New Testament letters and those instruct Christians today, whereas there are lots of narratives, particularly in the Old Testament, that just tell the story and leave it there. So when we approach Scripture, that's one of the many things that you have to look for categorically as you're looking at the passage. Okay, so you read through and see that uh, some prophet ended up running around naked, and you think, okay, well, that's what I should do then. Uh, think twice, right? Uh, think twice about that. Narrative and teaching, those are two different types of passages, okay? Um, I also wanted to, let's see, talk about, we talked about the formation of the Bible last week. Um, oh, the Aunt Sally illustration, Aunt Sally's recipe. Do you remember that from the video last week? Okay, Dusty's shaking her head yes. 
you've made the mistake. Now I'm going to ask you, what was that about? Aunt Sally and her, I can't remember what it was, potion or something? Well, Secret sauce, that's what it was. Yeah. Okay, so what, what, what was that whole illustration? Okay, good. Yeah, so you could say that, for the sake of the story, we could say that the original recipe, Sally who had this recipe, she shared it with 10 people, and then hers fell into a fire. We'll just say it's just totally eliminated. So as Dusty was saying, she goes back to try to get her original recipe back together, and she goes to the 10 people she shared it with, and she puts it back together. And what he was illustrating by sharing that illustration is how our Bibles today, even though we do not have the original letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for instance, like we can't go to a museum and see, oh, here's from Paul's hand, the letter to the, first, to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. We can't do that. But we can open our Bibles and we can trust what's in there because we have all of these manuscripts, all of these copies that have been preserved over time. And we're not talking 10, we're talking not hundreds, but thousands, thousands of copies where we can look down through history and patch it together and see where, oh, this manuscript went off because there are, you know, 1,200 manuscripts that disagree with what this one says. Well, they obviously made a mistake or something like that. That's the, that's the point. And so when it comes to our Bibles, when we approach them, we can approach the Bible from a position of trust, can't we? It is the most well-attested book in all of history. You can't find another book in all of history that you can trust more than the Bible. The writings of Aristotle and Plato and Homer and all those people that you learned about in school, none of them have even really a significant fraction of the evidence that our Bibles have, that those guys actually said what they said or wrote what they wrote. Our Bibles are much more, uh, uh, much more solid, I guess you could say, when it comes to knowing that they are a reflection of what the original authors wrote. Okay, so I wanted to make sure that was clear. Any thoughts or questions on that aspect of it? Good. Okay. You are at a Bible church, so I assume we're kind of in agreement there. Okay. Um, well, then what we're going to do now is we're going to jump into the next lesson. And I think what I'll do is pause it pretty near the beginning. Hopefully, we'll get through two videos today, maybe three, because they're all shorter than 10 minutes. They're all short, short videos. Um, but near the beginning, I'm actually going to pause it because there are a couple times in this series where, for whatever reason, Todd Friel misspeaks or something. It's just a little sloppy. And this video contains one of those sloppy moments where I don't think he said what he intended to say. And so I want to pause it and then clarify that. But uh, we'll start there and um, then catch up. This is going to be on the role of the Holy Spirit. Same guy. Same guy. Yep, the same cartoon character guy. That tall drink of water. <clears throat> okay, hold on, hold on. Welcome back to another lesson of Herman Who, the role of the Holy Spirit. What role does the third person of the Trinity play in our understanding of the Bible? This is what T.D. Jakes thinks his role is. We don't need the Holy Spirit to reveal what the Word has expressed. 
we need the Holy Spirit to get down into the details of what is true for you. There aren't no scriptures telling you who to marry or where to live or what your gifts are. So you can study the word until you turn blue in the face. Until you hear the Holy Spirit, you won't have clear direction as to the details and the demographics of what God has designed for your life. That's a pretty bold statement. You can study the Bible all you want, but you're not going to get it unless the Holy Spirit illuminates you. So. Does the Holy Spirit help us with the right interpretation of the Bible? All right, let's see. Um, let's pause just right there and tell me what you think about what was just said. Well, first of all, do you know who T.D. Jakes is? <laughs> That's probably a significant part of the equation here. T.D. Jakes is a crazy person. His books are sold in Walmart, so you can count on him being crazy, okay? Um, yeah, T.D. Jakes is a heretic. Uh, he denies the Trinity. He um, teaches all kinds of strange things about a variety of items, but he gets salvation wrong too. Usually when people deny the Trinity, they also get salvation wrong. But based on what he said in the clip and how Todd Friel responded, what are your thoughts on that? Pro, con, both, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Uh, no, I won't even say. <laughs> say that again, Joe. Yeah, that. Yeah, that, I mean, that's pretty much all we've seen so far, right? Is Real introduces the clip. T.D. Jake says, "Look, the Bible doesn't tell you who to marry or anything like that. You need the Holy Spirit to teach you those things. The Word of God can't teach you those things." So, what do you think? Okay, well, and it, it's a fact. The Bible doesn't tell you who to marry specifically, right? I mean, there are general principles that are given, but it doesn't say, uh, hey, Mary, you need to marry uh, Tom or anything like that, right? Um, doesn't tell you where to go to school. Doesn't tell you where to live. Doesn't tell you if you should homeschool your children or not. Doesn't tell you a whole bunch of things, specific details to your life. So that part is true, isn't it? And how do we figure those things out in life? Yes. Right. Yeah, it was kind of strange. When we came off that T.D. Jakes clip, Todd Friel was saying, yeah, he, was, he basically said, well, you need the Holy Spirit to illumine you, according to T.D. Jakes. And it's like, well, no, he, that's right. We do need the Holy Spirit to illumine us. Because he not only guides us in our lives, but he also does teach us Scripture. He's the divine author of Scripture, isn't he? Uh, the, the Bible isn't a human book, merely. It's, it's a divine book through human authors. And so as we read the Bible, we rely on the Holy Spirit to teach us to illumine our understanding so that we know what the words are uh, and the significance it has on our lives. And we also need the Holy Spirit, not just guiding us individually, but guiding God's people as they give us counsel when we make decisions in life about who to marry and where to live and where to go to school and how to teach your kids and all that stuff. So at the beginning here, it was just kind of sloppy where I feel like things got conflated that shouldn't have been conflated and wanted to clear that up. And the rest of it is, is pretty good. So we'll discuss it from there, but I just wanted to give that to you. You can see we're 59 seconds in and we're already that far on the timeline. So it's a short video. 
Thank you, Joseph. You want to go ahead and just hit play there? That'd be great. And the answer is a definitive yes and no. Turn your Bible, please, to 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, the, the, the word understand, not mere head knowledge. It, it's the knowledge that comes from experience. So the Holy Spirit helps the believer, but only in a somewhat limited way. He helps us know it's true. The only way that you and I recognize this book is true is because you have been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who helps us to apply it to our lives, who gives us the power to do that. A pagan can understand the Bible, but he can't believe it and apply it. So does he give us the correct interpretation ever? And the answer to that is he might. He might do that, but that's not a guarantee in Scripture. Just consider the good man with different views. All right, John MacArthur correctly understands believer's baptism. R.C. Sproul, where's my Presbyterian, right? He, be he believes in paedo-baptism. Now, are these two men, one of them a heretic outside? No, they're brilliant. So if the Holy Spirit always gives us the right interpretation, we wouldn't see these differences of understanding. We wouldn't see denominations. We wouldn't see any sort of divisions in Christianity. So while he may give us that, he has given us another way to understand the word. We need to use the brains that he gave us. Once again, 2 Timothy 2.15 Study, be diligent to show yourselves approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly cutting the word of truth. So this verse tells us that there's an intellectual and a methodological way to interpret the scripture. We want to cut the word straight like a tent maker. So what do we, what do we use for tools? Well, we need the right knowledge. You need the right skills. You need the right tools. You need to practice. You need to do the work to be diligent. And you, just plain, need to do it. Should we, therefore, ever ask the Holy Spirit to teach us? Of course we should. He's the only one who can teach us that it's true and apply it to our lives. And I think it's just fine. You can ask the Holy Spirit, please help me to understand this verse. I, I really want to understand that. And he may answer that prayer. So this is not to put the Holy Spirit on a shelf, but to understand he's given us another means that's more methodological and intellectual than just waiting for the right understanding of the text. We can't neglect the hard work that goes into this. We need the correct tools and skills to read the Bible rightly, and that takes a whole lot more work than this particular pastor who prepares this way for his Sunday sermons. Some of the uh, tools that I use, this one right here is great. It's called the Complete Idiot's Guide to the Bible. So often when you, when you study the Bible, especially when you preach, it's hard to know what to say and what not to say. And so often I say too much uh, when, when I could have said it in more of a, a concise way. And so many pastors that I listen to make the same mistake. This has helped me a lot because it gives a great... Uh, kind of gives you the cliff notes of what's going on 
This weekend I'm talking about King Ahab and Elijah, and it just has some cool stuff, so I, I recommend that. I also use the Life Application Bible a lot. There's some pretty cool notes, some, some good uh, biographical sketches. For example, Elijah, Ahab, I like that. I'll use the Dallas Theological uh, Commentary. It's called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. That's a, that's a great tool. I've had that for a long, long time. There's an alternative to using the Idiot's Guide to Christianity to preach a sermon. There's so many resources that exist for us today. Every single word in the Bible has been cataloged. Every single word with a number attached to it. You've got yourself Bible encyclopedias, the pictorial encyclopedia of the Bible, a Bible dictionary, the Bible background, this is IVP. You've got your Greek lexicon, actually a couple of them to understand, and this is a Hebrew lexicon, to understand the original language. A child can understand the Bible, but if we want to be good cutters of the Word, let's ask the Holy Spirit for His help and then simply get to work. Okay, uh, there was a lot of helpful stuff uh, in that video, uh, in that particular lesson, um, even though it was short. So let's talk through this idea. Does the Holy Spirit always give us the correct interpretation? In what sense does the Holy Spirit give us all the same thing as Christians? And in what sense does he not do that? Can you articulate that to any degree? Because in one sense, we've all received the same thing through the Word of God by the Holy Spirit, haven't we? But in another sense we're not all over at the Assemblies of God Church this morning, are we? So explain that. Brave students. What do you think? Okay. Why are we... Why, what have all Christians received from the Word of God? All Christians by the power of the Holy Spirit? And what has the Holy Spirit not given to all Christians that creates these different local churches where we have different views of things? Now, are you saying all groups but one group of humans who... You know, our, our church, of course, has all doctrine right. <laughs> and all these other churches around, they're just doing the best they can. Well, it's actually all of us, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we are all limited, number one. I mean, that's just, by nature, we're creatures. We are not the creator, so we're not all-knowing. We are not infinite. We are absolutely, thoroughly limited. So starting there is bad enough. And then when you add, oh, there's sin in the world and in us. <laughs> so, just prone to error in everything that we do, which creates a lot of confusion. And you see this not just in your Bible study, you see this in all your relationships in life, don't you? Just error. Everyone's prone to error. And so uh, when it comes to the Bible, that's really no different. It's not like when we study the Bible, we step out of our sin nature. You can't. Okay? So there's a difficulty in explaining everything down to a T because we're limited and we're prone to error, for sure. And... Um, you guys have seen that doctrine chart I've made with the three columns. I, I hope we've got copies on a literature table if you need one. But 
you have, we'll just think of the first two uh, types of doctrine, primary doctrine and secondary doctrine. Primary doctrine includes the gospel. It includes the definitional doctrines of Christianity, like the Bible is the Word of God, <laughs> the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, these aspects of the Christian faith that if you take one of those things away, you don't have a Christian faith anymore. It includes those types of things. Those doctrines are so clear in Scripture and are so used by the Holy Spirit that every single person who claims the name of Christ has agreement on all those doctrines. So I use the Assemblies of God Church as an example. We don't disagree on the Trinity. We don't disagree on uh, the Bible as the Word of God, the perfect and errant Word of God. We don't disagree on the fact that man is sinful and needs a Savior, that Jesus Christ is God. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. He physically rose again, and the only way we can be made right with God is through faith alone. We don't disagree on any of that. All Christians everywhere agree on those things. You could include Nephi Baptist or Hope Baptist here in town on those things. Okay, we, we agree. Now, when you get to the secondary doctrine column, now we're talking about the more particular details of doctrine, which when they say more particular details, don't hear that as they don't matter. They matter. They do. But they are not the gospel, and they're not definitional to the faith. Okay? So we have to keep things in balance and in perspective here. When you get into things like, how does God actually save somebody? How much human will is involved and how much is God alone doing the work? Lots of disagreements in the Christian world on that. When you get into things like the sign gifts, picking on our Assemblies of God friends again, they'll, they'll be open to God speaking to them and giving them new revelation and speaking in Babel, which they call tongues, and giving some interpretation of the Babel. They're open to all of that. They're open uh, to, to things that we would not be open to because of their interpretation of Scripture. You also get into end times discussions, and you have all kinds of views on the end times. God hasn't given His church one singular view of the end times, and all other views are heresies. He hasn't. We have different opinions on this. So it seems as though the Holy Spirit, as He has seen fit, has testified to all Christians everywhere around the world certain doctrines in the Bible, how to be saved, what is uh, definitional to who God is and who man is, and what the Bible is. He has testified to all Christians everywhere about these things, and we have all these things in common. However, he has not seen fit to testify at one particular view of Calvinism-Arminianism debate, one particular view of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. He hasn't willed that in his church. And so we have these denominational divides because a group of Christians gets together and has the same view on certain things in the Bible in that secondary column, and they have a church together. They get planted, and they have that church. And then there's another group that disagrees on enough things in that column that they say, yeah, we couldn't really do fellowship with you. It just wouldn't work because we disagree on too many things. Even though we recognize you're going to heaven, we're going to heaven. We disagree on too many other things to be able to go to the same local church. So that isn't, it's a really fascinating thing. I have a whole podcast, what my podcast is about, is everything I just explained. That's what we talk about on our podcast. I think it's incredibly fascinating, but it is just also the way it is, isn't it? And we have to recognize that we have lots of brothers and sisters who are going to heaven that we'll spend eternity with, but for this time here on earth, we're not going to be found in the same local church. Questions 
or comments. <laughs> Opens the door to a few things if we want to go to the, that route, but thoughts? Joseph. Yes. The self-image issues we have. Yeah. So, and, and that's a great point. Even though we, by necessity, need to be in different churches on a Sunday morning, we still need to be in peace with one another. And look for ways, and there are different degrees where we can fellowship, too. I mean, you, you get, <laughs> say you were to present to me some sort of a church where we would have just a lot of secondary disagreements. It's likely that the elders of this church would feel uncomfortable doing any type of activity with them just because there are so many things that we're just uncomfortable with. Even though they may be Christians, they may not be Christians, we're just not comfortable. Or you could find a church where we really just have a couple of teeny tiny little differences in the secondary doctrine category. And we think, yeah, let's still get together with them for a hymn sing night. Let's do evangelism with them. Let's see if we can uh, have a a pro-choice ministry with them, something like that. Um, so there's a degree of comfort with all of that, and the elders of every church need to decide those things. Um, but they are complicated issues. At the end of the day, though, what you said is right. We need to keep doctrine in its place, meaning um, let's not elevate things that are not of first importance and treat them like they are of first importance. And that's what happens a lot. Uh, that's what a cult is, by the way. A cult doesn't have this distinction of primary and secondary doctrine. A cult says, this is the one church, you do what we say. <laughs> That's what a cult is, okay? Hopefully, uh, our church never becomes a cult, but there are lots of churches that do that, that just want to control people's lives and say, well, look, this is the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to do this with your children. You're supposed to dress this way. You're supposed to drink this or not drink that or eat this or don't eat that. That is not biblical Christianity. That's a cult. Um, so we have to always keep things in balance. Joe. Oh, okay. Um. Yes, but I have seven paragraphs I want to follow that up with. So, <laughs> um, so, for instance, in the book of 1 Corinthians, so we're going to get to this chapter eventually, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, Paul says to this church, I delivered to you as that which is of first importance, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised again according to the Scriptures. He says that is of first importance. Great. Now, the problems we run into in the real world as we take this doctrine out and start interacting with people is that you have people that affirm everything you just said, but said, well, you know, I believe that. Um, I just believe that Jesus is the first creation of God, and he's our elder brother. Okay, well, now that invalidates what you just said about him dying in our place for our sins, because you have to believe that he's God in flesh. And if you don't believe that, it doesn't matter if you say his name. It's a different Jesus. And I also would say 
when you get into the other doctrines that are definitional to Christianity, like someone saying, I believe that Jesus died for my sins on the cross and rose again, and I'm made right with him by faith. Um, but, you know, the Bible is, you can trust what Jesus said in the Bible, but when it gets to Paul and John, those guys were kind of rough, and uh, I just stick with, with the red letters in the Bible. Okay, well, that person still might be going to heaven. That's God's call, but I'm not going to be comfortable saying, oh, yeah, that person's an Orthodox Christian. No, that person has left Christianity for his own version of Christianity. Uh, I wouldn't be comfortable saying, yeah, he's a Christian like us. It would be, well, he says he believes the gospel, but this is what he thinks of the Bible. Just God knows. God knows. Um, I, go down through history, you have people that have had very interesting views of Scripture, C.S. Lewis being one of them. Um, other names that, you know, you would recognize where you think, okay, they affirmed the right things, but they also denied some of the right things, and so only God knows. And what we need to take, or the way we need to respond is we're not comfortable affirming that person because that person's denying a very important doctrine of the Christian faith gets complicated in a hurry. <coughs> Remembering that you're not omniscient is a very important part of the puzzle. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Mark. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes. Very good. <laughs> yes. Correction, correction. Uh, we are not pro-choice, uh, so pro-life. An anti-pro-choice, anti-choice rally. Okay. Um, okay, at the end there, he was showing that, uh, that pastor, that's Ed Young Jr. again. He's the one earlier in the series running around the auditorium acting like a car. You remember that? <laughs> God made you a Corvette. And he started to... Yeah. And you can see... I mean, you watch a clip like that. How does a preacher get to that point? Well, you just saw his preparation, okay? He's reading the Idiot's Guide to the Bible. Uh, hold me to a higher standard, please. Uh, don't allow me to do that. But I wanted to bring that, uh, to dwell on that for a moment. I don't know how much in the Christian news you all are, but in the Southern Baptist Convention, there's a lot of chatter right now about how preachers prepare for sermons because the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, his name is J.D. Greer. You can hear him on the radio quite a bit. He plays on key radio and everything. He was the president until a few weeks ago when his term ended, and the new president is a guy who's a pastor in Alabama named Ed Litton. Well, what came out uh, shortly after Ed Litton assumed the presidency is that, hmm, Ed Litton's sermon series on the Book of Romans Sounds a whole lot like J.D. Greer's sermon series on the book of Romans. In fact, some people have taken clips and put them side by side, and he's using the same illustrations. He's using the same phrases. He has the exact same outline. It is total, absolute, undeniable plagiarism that's happening. And he's now the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they're all having to figure that out. I'm very glad we're not in that convention. Um, so I'm, I just want to bring that up to say... Uh, First of all, preachers of the Word of God need to be held to a high standard. They should never be allowed to plagiarize. It's amazing how many people are defending this new president's stealing of someone else's content. Um, even the former president, uh, from whom he stole, is saying, eh, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. 
Uh, that should not be happening. If I stood up in the pulpit today and I just regurgitated a John MacArthur sermon from 30, 40 years ago on this passage, and I just started doing that every week, how would you feel about that? I would hope you would feel robbed and start wondering what I'm doing all week, okay? Because I should be spending a lot of time studying and preparing for these things. Uh, so, yeah, Todd Friel is exactly right. We have so many resources out there, especially in our day and age. There is zero reason for any student of the Bible to just fall back and depend on, um, okay, I, I have an idiot's guide to the Bible. It's going to tell me what to believe. Don't do that. Take up the call to work, to study, to show yourself approved. That was Paul's admonition to Timothy, and I think we do well to apply that to ourselves to varying degrees, to study well. And God's given you the, so many resources on the Internet, so many books. My library is available to you, all of these things. Just like Nike, just do it, okay? Mark. Right. I do believe the Spirit does yes. interact with us in that way. Because there's times where I'm reading and studying for something and I'm thinking, hmm, I, I can't dive what yeah. saying. And I think that is an interaction. But I, I think you also have to be careful that you don't go off on yeah. feelings alone and throw everyone, you know. Yes. Because you can get to where I just don't like this person, so everything they say, mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit tells me they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> And you can, you can get to a point where you, dis you think you discover something in Scripture that no one else has ever discovered before. That's pretty dangerous. After 2,000 years of church history, the list of things we haven't discovered, if it exists, is very, very small, okay? So be careful about thinking, oh, look, I've, look, I discovered this in the Bible, and I've read 15 commentaries on the passage, and none of them see it. Yeah. Now... Uh, However, uh, coming up, we have August 8th and August 15th, those two Sundays. It's going to be part one and part two on head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. So, ooh, don't miss head coverings. Uh, going to be pretty exciting. But um, the topic of head coverings and how to interpret that passage, there's been great disagreement in the Christian world on that. And there is a seminary professor that I don't know personally, but I heard his view, and he's the only one who takes that view. It's a convenient view. Uh, <laughs> so, I Maybe he's right. It's pretty convenient, but uh, we'll see um, as we talk through that. And so there are passages in Scripture that are pretty, that are really difficult, and there's always been disagreement on, and you're never going to find a real great consensus on it. I mean, there, there have been some passages already in 1 Corinthians. I'm using about seven commentaries where it's a 4-3 split on these four take this view, these three take another view. And well, you just have to make, pull the trigger, make a decision and say, this is what I think. But Usually in those cases, too, you have to say, look, I know I could be wrong. So you never want to get to the point where you just ignore people like Mark's saying and say, nah, I'm right about this and everybody else is wrong. Yeah, I just got to be careful because there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. There's not wisdom just in yourself. Okay. All right, I'm going to play the next one. This one is about um, pre-understandings. You would do well to turn to Luke 15, Luke chapter 15, particularly look at verses 13 and 14. Luke 15, 13, and 14, that's what will be brought up in this uh, lesson. <clears throat>
Welcome to Herman Who Lesson 5, Lose Your Pre-Understandings. Need to understand what that word means, what that word doesn't mean, but you and I, before we enter into a text, I need to be a bit like an Etch-A-Sketch. Just shake it and make everything go away, sort of, so that we can understand what the author intended and not what we bring to the text in our pre-understanding. So here's two different words to help us understand how we're supposed to approach the Bible before we read it. You and I, as Christians, have certain presuppositions. What's a presupposition? An unshakable, unmovable, non-compromisable belief about the Bible. And that is a good and healthy way to approach the Bible. If you're reading a Bible verse and it's like, you know, I'm thinking that this could maybe mean Jesus isn't God. Hold it. My, my presupposition is Jesus is God. I'm not going to lose everything that I know about theology, but I do want to lose my pre-understandings. My presuppositions, they include things like inspiration, infallibility, sufficiency, inerrancy, and that the Bible is non-contradictory. I'm clinging to those, but I'm going to lose me in the text, if you will. You've got so many people who say, put yourself into the text. Well, actually, I think you're supposed to take yourself, at least for the time being, out of the text because I can bring so much, well, junk to it. For instance, all of my pre-understandings. I've got my attitudes and experiences to interpretation, how I grew up, family, friends, where I grew up, location, media, language, social conditioning, what my gender is, intelligence, cultural values, worldviews, economic status, family values, hobbies, political allegiances, emotional maturity, religious experiences, denominational background, nationality, and skin color. All of that needs to go away. I have to erase that. Otherwise, I'm going to bring it into the text and I'm going to shade it to mean what I want it to mean. We must be willing to adjust these while holding on to our presuppositions. Now, I, I want to read, this is kind of lengthy, but I think you'll enjoy this trip that we're going to go on to get at the essence of what I'm talking about, how we can read the Bible based on being an American in the 21st century, different than, say, somebody overseas. So this is Trevin Wax wrote this. And I think he took it from Mark Allen Powell's book, What Do They Hear? Bridging the Gap Between Pulpit and Pew. So he did an experiment with 12 American seminary students assigned to read the parable of the prodigal son. We all know it. And then recounted from memory. Interestingly enough, none of them mentioned the famine. American seminarians, nothing about the famine. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. But they didn't even see that in the text, or at least consider it. Powell himself had considered Jesus' reference to the famine as an insignificant detail. But he was surprised to see all of his students forgot it. So then he organized a study with 100 American students of different genders, races, economic status, and religion. Out of 100 students, only six mentioned the famine in their retelling of Jesus' parable. Perplexed, he went to St. Petersburg, Russia and did the same experiment with 50 Russians. He was shocked. 42 out of the 50 remembered the famine. Only six out of 100 Americans remembered the famine. Why the disparity? He believes 
maybe a psychological explanation that goes back to 1941 when the Germans laid siege to St. Petersburg and caused a 900-day famine in which 670,000 Russians died of starvation and exposure. Even after so many years, the horror of the famine lingers in the consciousness of Russian citizens. We can do the very same thing. It goes even further, however, to get into the application of the text. Many Russian readers made no reference to the prodigal son squandering his property. People from those two cultures tend to hear the emphasis on the parable differently. The American hears the parable. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate and foolish living. After he spent everything, a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. Kind of how we hear it. You blew the inheritance. The Russian hears the parable like this. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate and foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Where does that come from? A pre-understanding, an experience. What TV shows did you watch? Were you homeschooled? What, what fancy development or poor development did you? All of your experiences come crashing in. In other words, Americans see the famine as an insignificant detail that intensifies the prodigal's big problem, wastefulness. Russians, on the other hand, see the prodigal's wasteful spending as an insignificant detail that intensifies the real tragedy, the famine. So which is it? Social location, cultural background impact the way we see what the boy did wrong. Americans consider the prodigal's great sin to be his extravagant, wasteful lifestyle, but in Powell's study, the Russians didn't see the wastefulness as the biggest problem. His mistake was leaving his father's house in the first place. A deeper understanding, perhaps, than most of us have of family. They read that and they're just aghast. You would leave your family to go live and live licentiously? To them, it's absolutely scandalous. His sin was placing a price tag on the value of his family, thinking that money was all he needed from them. Once he had his share of the family fortune, the family itself no longer mattered. In a phrase, his sin was wanting to be self-sufficient, which is exactly the pre-understanding that you and I bring to most texts, which is, I think, why the evangelical church struggles so much with the idea of church. How many times Paul uses the plural, you, the one another's, in Russia, in foreign countries where family has a, perhaps a richer heritage, they get that. We struggle with it. In a capitalist society, we see the prodigal sin in terms of wastefulness. In a socialist society, the Russians see the prodigal sin as self-sufficiency. Lesson number one from this Trevin Wax story, know your sources, know your people. So in other words, when you look at some of those resources that we are going to be diving into, who wrote that? Well, what sort of information might they be bringing to the party? If somebody, for instance, when Wayne Grudem, everybody loves Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Well, hold on, he's a continuationist. He's a bit of a charismatic. Am I going to see that anywhere inside of Wayne's systematic theology? You bet. So you eat the meat and spit out the bones because that's what he brings to his theology. Lesson two. We all bring pre-understandings to Scripture. Lesson three, 
consult commentaries from people in societies different from our own because they might see things just a little bit differently. To conclude, your pre-understandings, as best you can, recognize that you've got them, get rid of them, but bring those unshakable presuppositions to the text, hold on to them tightly, and if you are able to do that before you enter into the text, you will do a much better job of actually interpreting the text. Okay, um, something I want to mention that I forgot to mention in the last um, lesson. He mentioned uh, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul having a disagreement on baptism in the last one as an example of how not all Christians agree. John MacArthur practices believer's baptism, R.C. Sproul sprinkled babies. Um, he just mentioned Wayne Grudem. In Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, it's a very good one-volume systematic theology, but he has different views on sign gifts than say we would. Um, just so you know, Todd Friel in this series doesn't get into his particular views of secondary doctrine. That doesn't come up. So if you're thinking that this whole series is leading up to now he's going to tell us why based on his hermeneutic he believes in believer's baptism, he believes the sign gifts have ceased, etc. He doesn't get that detailed with it. He keeps it a pretty high level as far as here are some things you need to know as you approach the Bible and um, here's how you can apply it generally in your own personal study, just so you're aware. But um, as we think about pre-understandings and presuppositions, I thought that prodigal son thing was pretty interesting. I wouldn't have remembered there was a famine. If you would ask me to retell it, I wouldn't have said that. So uh, I thought that was a good point and shows we just put different emphases on different things, don't we, based on different factors. So pretty interesting. Um, do you know the difference between a presupposition and a pre-understanding? It's a little, little tough. Okay. So I'll just reiterate a little bit with my own razzle-dazzle. So presuppositions are pre-beliefs that we take to the Bible that should not change. Pre-understandings are beliefs we have beforehand that we take to the Bible that are subject to change. That's the main difference. Presuppositions shouldn't change. Pre-understandings should change. An example of a presupposition that should not change would be that the Bible is the Word of God. So, as you approach the Bible, should you say, eh, this may just be like any other book? No. Why are you spending time with it, right? As you approach the Bible, you should have a presupposition that it is the self-attesting revelation of God, that by interacting with it, you will have a testimony from God because it's His revelation that He uses in your life. That, you shouldn't change any of that. That's not subject to change. That is a presupposition. Now, a pre-understanding, an example of that that should change, would be something like, men are better than women, and I'm going to go to the Bible to prove it. Ladies, should that be subject to change? <laughs> yeah, so you're taking something that is a cultural or familial or whatever type of teaching that you've grown up with that you have for whatever reason, and you take that to the Bible, and that should be on the docket. That should be able to be corrected from Scripture, okay? Um, that's the difference between a presupposition and a pre-understanding. Now, determining what should fall in the 
presupposition camp and what should fall in the pre-understanding camp, that can be a little difficult. But let me tell you, this list is going to be at least 20 times longer than this list, okay? <laughs> there are just a few things that fit into the it should never change category. And those are found, uh, again, referencing my chart, that primary doctrine column as you think about what the gospel is, what is definitional to Christianity, those things aren't subject to change. Those things are founded on the Word of God. They couldn't be changed. But everything in that secondary column, all your opinions about how you should go about doing this or go about doing that, all of that should be subject to change. The vast majority of that should be subject to change, okay? Um, so that's the difference between presuppositions and pre-understandings. Thoughts or questions on that phenomenon? Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's it. Um, you, any Bible verse, and that's actually, I think that, well, no, it's not the next lesson. Coming up soon, uh, maybe lesson seven, he addresses that very point. The Bible can be made to say anything, just about. You take any, you find one verse that sounds like it's saying something, you take it out, you apply it however you want, bada bing, bada boom. Just like we did with um, a few passages that Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You just have that one verse, that means I can be an astronaut. That means I can be president of the United States because I got the promise in Scripture. That means this, this, this. Well, that's not what Paul was saying. Look at what comes before, look what comes after, and then interpret the verse in its context. So, yes, any verse can be made to say pretty much anything if it's robbed from its context. So we always have to watch out for that. Anything else on that conversation? The things about you that could affect your interpretation, basically it boils down to this. One, your personal desire for how God should be and how you should be. There are a lot of people who approach the Bible, well, God should be this way, so I'm going to read the Bible that way. That's a big one. You've got to check that, okay? You should never approach the Bible with, this is how I believe God interacts with man, and I'm going to read everything with that interpretation. Well, hold on. Let the Bible build itself up in that doctrine. If the Bible presents God is doing this, and because of this in His nature, be open to learning all of that, whatever that may be. I mean, there are a lot of uh, applications for that, but be open to the Bible teaching you what the Bible says. Don't come in and say, oh, I know it says this, but I'm going to look at it sideways and make sure I get my own interpretation in there. Don't do that. Mark. Yeah. There you go. Yes. Yeah, it is. I mean, what we've done with the flood, think of the Noah's flood scenario. We've taken it and we've put the cartoon giraffes and elephants on the nursery wall, and isn't that precious? God drowned the world, <laughs> except for eight people, okay? Now, dwell on that for a little bit. God drowned the world, except for eight people. 
a lot of people aren't comfortable with that. God commanded Israel to do some pretty, in our view, wild things. Are you going to squint in your eyes and say, uh, nah, that can't be what it says. It has to be this. The flood must have been local, not global. It was just a certain bad group of people that lived in this certain location that were, that were drowned. You know, that's a competing view with the biblical account, right? Lots of people teach that because they can't deal with the fact that God drowned the world except for eight people. So, let, and the animals, except for, you know, a pair of each. That was nice. Let the Bible teach what is true and just submit. You have to approach the Bible with a view of submission. Joe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Don't confuse me with the facts. Yeah, mm-hmm. So, t- so, two things that could affect your interpretation. One is your personal desire for how God should be and, how, and who man should be. A lot of people approach the Bible, too, with the thinking that man's great. Is that going to affect the way you understand some things about man in the Bible? Yeah, it is. Nothing's ever going to be as bad as it truly is when you read about it. Yeah, I know. Children of wrath, following Satan like the rest of the world, dead. It's not too bad. No, that's terrible. You read those words for what they are and the whole point that Paul's making, it's bad. It's really, really, really bad, okay? So have the Bible teach you about who God is and who man is. But the second thing that could affect your interpretation is also your doctrinal training to this point. And this is so hard because you've been given lots of good doctrinal training in your life. You've also been given bad doctrinal training in your life. Hopefully not a lot of bad, but to a degree we've all received some bad training and we have to be corrected on those things. So you come to the Bible with this, the teachings you've received, whether in this church, another church, wherever, that are just wrong. And the Bible will correct those things. And working all that out is a very complicated matter too. But it happens, okay? So you just have to understand as you approach the Word of God, you have these pre-understandings that need to be subject to change. But distinguish them from the presuppositions that should not be subject to change. Those doctrines that are definitional to the Christian faith, those aren't up for grabs because those are founded on the Bible itself. But the other things, they are founded on the Bible, but they're, again, in that category of we're limited creatures, we're prone to error, and we all have these uh, proclivities that we bring to our Bible study, and we just have to be aware of those, okay? It's hard work. It's hard work, but it's your life. You're a Christian. This is your your world, okay? Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we do, again, thank you for the day that you've given us and all the good things that you've provided for us, all the ways you've protected us. And Lord, we ask that as we endeavor to study your word, that you would, again, just show yourself faithful to us time and time again in the ways that you protect us from error and in the ways that you provide nourishing truth to our souls. God, cause us to equip one another for this task. Cause us to encourage one one another in Bible study and uh, preparation that we would uh, be a church that is bound together by gospel love, growing in a knowledge of the truth always, never feeling like we've arrived, but always being submissive to the Word of God in whatever it is you would have us to learn through it. God, we thank you for the opportunity today to worship you together as your one body of Christ. Give us just a really sweet time of fellowship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.